This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome back to our show Carol Rose, who is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts, and who has her mic on. <laughs> so we have lots of feedback. What a, hey, listen, uh, the feedback we have now I want our listeners to know is just a minor glitch compared to what's been going on in the last few minutes in the studio. So, hey, things are getting better from our point of view. I think we can fix this audio problem, and we are so pleased to have Carol back with us. Carol Rose, thank you so much for being with us. I'm so pleased you could be with us today because I want to share with our listeners and have them hear your perspective on the upcoming Supreme Court term, which is about to start. There are really yeah. important cases pending at the court that will be decided this term, including an extraordinarily important voting rights case, a case on abortion that I think will determine the future of abortion in the country, uh, the most important case uh, since Roe was overruled. And there is a gun case that is uh, it's going to determine whether or not people can walk around with guns, open carry, uh, uh, in every state, really. That would be amazing, yeah. but it certainly is possible. So thank you so much for being with us. Listen, Carol Rose, you have a JD from Harvard Law School. And well, okay, but I've overcome it. You, okay, but here's the thing. Uh, in talking about the first case I want to review with you, which is the Rahimi case, that's the gun case at the Supreme Court, I want you to invoke the uh, D part of your JD, which is the doctor part. Because when I read the briefs in this case, I needed a therapist. Uh, I, 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 I did, really. I, I, I have and had before coming to work for the ACLU of Massachusetts, um, and before you were the executive director, uh, I had a, a long background uh, and a lot of experience in, in criminal law. And I, mm -hmm. when I read cases and briefs that involve uh, uh, rights, I have an intuitive uh, sense of, I want the rights to win. I want the person right. trying, to, trying to exercise fundamental rights to win. But mm -hmm. Rahimi, I read the briefs from uh, the federal public defenders in the Rahimi case, which yep. I'll ask you to describe for our listeners in just a second, and I was suffering from kind of cognitive dissonance. I mean, here I am, I'm rooting for these guys, they're, they're, my, they're on my team, and I'm saying, they're right. saying horrible things. Rahimi, of all people, someone who by any logic, is a guy who shouldn't be allowed to carry a toothpick or, or, or a penknife, much less a gun. And there they are saying, he has a fundamental constitutional right to carry a gun. And it made me kind of nuts. So, Dr. Rose, help me out and help our listeners explain this case <laughs> right, at the so Supreme we'll, Court, we'll, please. We'll a, right. We'll have a legal therapy session together. That's I appreciate it. Great. Uh, so... So this is a case um, where the, the ACLU um, filed an amicus brief. It's coming once again out of the notorious Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, so this is a Second Amendment challenge uh, to a federal law that would prohibit the possession of firearms by people who are subject to domestic violence restraining orders, right? So people who have a restraining order against them. The question is, can they be prohibited from getting a gun? Um, and that's really important because 
uh, about half of the deaths and homicides that occur in domestic violence situations come from people because they have guns, right? Um, because they're so lethal, obviously. Um, and so the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit actually said that invalidated this law. And the reasoning was crazy. The, the crazy-making part that you're talking about is it found no analogs from the 1700s or 1800s that restricted gun possession because somebody commits domestic violence. Now, wait a second. Um, wait, wait a second. I want to make sure people understand that. Uh, there's no domestic. There's no historical analog because when the country was founded, uh, when women had no rights, there were no domestic relations laws, uh, no domestic That's violence right. no laws. Domestic violence laws, because at that time, you know, women were, you know, not considered fully human, and so and the, the notion of domestic violence wasn't really in the lexicon at the time, right? It certainly existed, but it wasn't something that was recognized in the law. Um, and so the Fifth Circuit basically really misapplied the Supreme Court's decision in Bruin, which was, of course, the case that said that there's, the Second Amendment gives expanded rights for individuals to have guns, um, and, and sort of saying that the court has to analyze gun regulations under this originalist framework. But that's a misreading of Bruin, um, because Bruin didn't say you have to go back to the 1700s in every you know, instance, and, and you can only apply laws, because back then we also used then they would only apply to muskets, right? I mean, so that's just doesn't make sense. Um, and so basically what... what I, I would be okay with that personally if the Supreme Court wants to say there's a right to <laughs> carry and possess mus muskets. I could live with that. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Um, on the other hand, on the other hand, uh, so on one hand you have uh, the, the lower court saying that, you know, you can't have any restrictions like that unless somebody's already been convicted, right? Only a convicted person could have a restriction. But that doesn't make any sense because we know that so much of domestic violence that, that people aren't convicted until after they've hurt somebody or killed somebody, right? So that can't be right. But on the other hand, um, you have the court, I mean, sorry, the government, the U.S. government fighting to uphold this. Uh, and says that, you know, you can have Second Amendment rights, but only for, quote, law-abiding and responsible citizens. Well, I mean, who's a responsible citizen? What does that mean? Um, does that mean somebody who is a dissent against the government is not responsible? And who decides who's responsible? So there, there's an, we have a situation here where, on one hand, you have efforts to uh, say, you know, the gloves are off, everybody can get a gun, no problem, even if you have... A restraining order against you on one hand. And then on the other hand, you say, no, 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 uh, the government gets to decide whether or not you're responsible. So the ACLU has filed an amicus brief in this case that argues that the court should reverse the much on a much narrower ground. In other words, without giving the government this really broad authority to say any, that we can decide anybody who's responsible, um, but that we should actually have an individual determination of people who pose a specific threat to someone else. And certainly someone under a restraining order for domestic violence might well be judged to pose an individual threat to another person. And there is history for this. Um, and it's so interesting, Bill, you know, if you go back and I went back like you and read the brief, um, it's so interesting now with this court that everybody's making these arguments based on history. And so there were surety laws, for example, back when, when if you felt threatened by another person, you could go and say, I'm feeling threatened just by that individual. So there were analogous. Uh, sort of restraining orders that existed, maybe not domestic violence restraining orders, but other kinds of restraining orders. So even though it's not a historical, uh, exactly on point, it's certainly a twin. 
uh, to have these kind of surety restraining orders. But it's quite interesting to see that everyone, all of us, including the ACLU, is having to make these historical arguments. So, you know, we need to make sure all of our kids are learning history in the schools because it's going to be critical if any of them want to become lawyers. One aspect of United States versus Rahimi, against that's the case at the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. it will be argued this term, and it raises yeah. the issue of the right to possess and guns. And the mm-hmm. phrase that you are using comes from a, the recent case, from the Bruin case, where the court right. talked about the right of law-abiding and responsible people to have guns, to carry guns, to possess guns. And right. Uh, the court uh, did not enlighten us as to what law-abiding and responsible means, but the Fifth Circuit right. said, well, that means uh, anyone who doesn't have a felony conviction, essentially. And right. what I would like to know from you, because the ACLU, of course, is renowned for its defense of the First Amendment, is this. Right. The Second Amendment, according to this Supreme Court, is a fundamental right. And, according to the Supreme Court, it has always been a fundamental right. We just didn't happen to know about it for the first 240 years. But it is, it is a <laughs> fundamental right and has always been a fundamental right. We just didn't know about it. Thank you, Supreme Court, for enlightening us. But that's the law. And if the government has the right to regulate this fundamental right to keep and bear arms— and that Second Amendment right is as important and fundamental as the First Amendment, then if the government can regulate the Second Amendment, why can't it regulate the First? Tell us about that slippery slope that we're on. Oh, man. Yeah. And and we have, it's so interesting with the Supreme Court term that's coming up, we have a lot of uh, free speech cases that are also going to be coming up. Um, and, and the interesting places are coming up are going to be, and, and they're going to be argued on Halloween, October 31st. Uh, so they're pretty scary, um, are whether or not the government can regulate speech on social media platforms. So there are two cases uh, that are coming up on that um, that are going to be consequential and possibly more after that. Uh, so the first one is O'Connor v. Radcliffe um, versus Garner, Garner, Link, and Freed. Um, and these center on the actions of local officials who are blocking individual constituents from their social media accounts. Um, so it's kind of an interesting situation. One of the suits uh, was filed where two members of a school board in Southern California um, blocked uh, two people, Christopher and Kim Garner, who were parents who were criticizing them. Uh, and I'm sure that school officials would love to be able to block all parents who criticize them, right? Um, and then the other one comes out of uh, Port Huron, Michigan. Um, basically, uh, the city manager uh, was criticized by Kevin Link. Uh, for his handling of the COVID-19 um, pandemic and, le- and left critical comments on uh, the city manager's Facebook page. And so the city manager blocked him. And so Link went to court and argued that these actions are a violation of the First Amendment. Um, and we're going to be seeing more and more of these, right? Because, uh, you know, so it raises the question of what are the free speech rights of government officials when they have their private uh, social media accounts, right? Are they, uh, can they block people? When are they entitled to their own first amendment protections? Um, and so the, it's going to become very fact-based. So the ACLU has filed briefs that are urging the court to look at two factors um, that the court has historically considered when thinking about the difference between a public official's private speech and private actions and their state actions. So the first is whether they're engaging in official duties. So if I use, if I'm a government official and I use my LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter account to make public pronouncements, I, I then I'm a government official, even if I'm on my personal account. Um, on the other hand, if I'm not, 
using it and I'm talking about, you know, my dog and you know, my garden and my kids and things like that, then I do have a right to block people who are trying to criticize me on that account. And so the, the two things are whether they're engaged in their official duties. That's the first test. And the second is whether a reasonable observer would think that they were cloaked in the authority of their office. So, um, again, this goes down to whether or not it's a public official is using a social media account, and it really is about their personal life, then they have a right to block people. But if they're using that, their own personal private social media account to talk about government things and to make government pronouncements, um, then they can't block people because that's a violation of the poster's First Amendment right. Well, this stuff is complicated, but it's also pretty much common sense. Well, yeah, it makes common sense. It sounds totally logical and reasonable. What's the Supreme Court having a problem with? Well, I mean, the Supreme Court granted review because the courts of appeal got, were divided on these preliminary questions about whether government officials are acting in their government capacity, that is like taking state action, when they curate their social media profile. Um, and so because the courts are split, so you, everybody, you know, can understand that you have the trial at the federal court, you have the trial court, and then you have the appeals court, right? And then you have the Supreme Court. That's the order of, of the courts. And so when you have differing, different rulings from the different appellate courts across the country, then the Supreme Court wants to take that up and resolve it so that we all have some kind of clarity. Um, and so it'll be really interesting to see where the Supreme Court comes down on this. And hopefully the Supreme Court, rather than making a blanket rule that it's always this or always that, will make a fact-based determination. And that will give some guidance to local and, and other government officials as to what they need to do if they want to be able to curate and control who's on their social media account, that they shouldn't be talking about public issues, making public pronouncements, issuing public messages and things like that on their private accounts. Um, if they want to be able to control it. But if they decide they want to make public pronouncements and act under the authority of the state, then they can't block people because people have a right in a democracy to respond to what government officials say on government websites. We are speaking with Carol Rose, who is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. We are reviewing the cases that will come before the Supreme Court of the United States in the next few weeks and months. We are going to discuss what is going to happen to voting rights. There is a crucial voting rights case coming before the court. There is also a vitally important case about abortion rights. We'll discuss that right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money, which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Here comes the money. 
you could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Carol Rose, who is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. We are discussing the Supreme Court term upcoming about to start with vitally important cases, one of which, Carol Rose, is the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine versus the uh, FDA. It's about the availability across the country of mifepristone or not. The question is whether or not abortion is going to, in fact, be available in many places, many states that want to outlaw it. It's a crucially important case, and I would appreciate it if you would describe it for our listeners and what you think the Supreme Court is apt to do. Well, yeah, so it's, it's great to talk to you, Bill and Buzz. Um, so this case started, I mean, it's been going on for a while, but last August, uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals issued a ruling uh, out of Texas that would have really devastating effects on the availability of abortion in every state um, by reinstating these old restrictions on people's ability to access mifepristone, which is a, a very, very safe, safer than Viagra abortion drug. Um, and the FDA found that it was safe and it was no reason to have any uh, limitations on the access. And, and so they lifted that. Um, but the Fifth Circuit said, no, 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 you have to prohibit. You have to go to these restrictions. And that would require people uh, to travel sometimes hundreds of miles to pick up the medication because it would prevent it, people from getting it through the mail, which is now how more than half of all abortions are, are done. Um, the, the rulings now on hold, the Fifth Circuit's ban on mifepristone has been stayed or put on hold because the Supreme Court uh, is going to be pending higher review of it. And if the Supreme Court rejects the case and does not take it up, then the Fifth Circuit ruling is going to take effect in the Fifth Circuit region, right? So it'll be in places like Texas and Oklahoma and Alabama and other places. But if the court takes the case, then the Fifth Circuit's ruling is going to be blocked or you know, halted until the justices finish their review. Um, and so it's going to be very interesting to see what happens because the implications are obviously huge for access to abortion rights, but it's also huge for anybody who's for all drug development because if the courts as political you know frankly actors can go in and say well we're going to reverse an fda decision a food and drug administration decision about what's a safe drug or not imagine the implications of that for all drug development because as we know um because we're in massachusetts where we have a lot of this uh, it takes years and years to try to bring a drug to market. Many of them fail, um, so there's a lot of risk. 
in doing so, um, and so is suddenly a drug that the FDA rules is safe and can be accessed, and the courts can come in years later and say, oh, yeah, no, we've decided as the court that we don't think you can do that. It's going to really screw up our economy and our access and the ability to develop new, uh, you know, life-enhancing drugs. So the implications are clearly and directly terrible for access to abortion, but they're also terrible for access to all the other medicines that we are hoping to be developed, whether they're cancer medications or, you know, cystic fibrosis or um, all of COVID, I mean, all of these things. So if the court some decide that they can insert themselves into the FDA process, the implications, um, both economic and health-wise, are just overwhelming, not to mention the implications for access to abortion. So this is a really big deal, and we need to pay a lot of attention to it. It's very unclear how the courts can rule. I'm hopeful that the the drug companies, um, the drug industry is going to really rise up and knock this back out of their own self-interest. And obviously, the ACLU and other groups that are fighting for basic rights to health care for everybody are also going to be fighting it in the Supreme Court. If so states can pro- if states can prohibit uh, the the distribution or receipt of mifepristone, that would have enormous implications for uh, persons who who are want, want to terminate a pregnancy in states across the country. I mean, it seems to me it is of enormous consequence. Exactly. Oh, and also for miscarriage care, right? Because that's what's used in miscarriage care. So if somebody has a, a, a non-viable pregnancy, even a wanted pregnancy, and the doctors you know, are going to have a hard time you know, being able to, to access this, so people are going to have a hard time accessing it. So the implications just across the, the board are huge. And, you know, we're already reading stories about people down in Texas are going across the border into Mexico to get abortions. So if people want to get abortions, we know that. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the pre-row. People are going to find a way. that will just be less safe. Um, And so all people know that if if you need to get an abortion, if you're unable to carry uh, a pregnancy to term and you need to get an abortion, you'll find a way. They're just making it more dangerous. For people because it's part of a larger agenda to try to control women in particular, but all people seeking abortion care um, by certain people in this country. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about how it's, they're using the handmaid's tale as their, you know, blueprint. Um, and I think that this is exactly what we're seeing out of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal. Carlos, is another case I want to get your perspective on, and it's the case uh Uh, It involves the South Carolina NAACP. It's a voting rights case. There has been an enormous amount of concern about voter suppression and the ability and the right to vote and whether it remains a fundamental right that will be protected. Could you tell our listeners, please, about this case at the court? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's this case and then another case we should talk about, too, just out of Alabama, which is a good news case. Um, But, you know, the right to vote, you know, some people talk of it as like a a modal right, a fundamental right upon which all other rights, because if you don't have the right to vote, uh, it's very hard to protect all of the other basic rights that we have. So voting rights remains and has always been one of the most important focuses and and priorities for the ACLU. Um, So the case out of South Carolina is Alexander versus South Carolina NAACP, and it's just going to be argued in just a couple of weeks on October 11th, so people can stay tuned for that. This is an ACLU case that challenges South Carolina's racially gerrymandered congressional map. 
So back in 2022, um, South Carolina adopted this gerrymandered congressional map based on race, racially gerrymandered, right? Um, and the ACLU sued on behalf of the South Carolina NAACP um, to basically to, to challenge the constitutionality of this new map. Uh, and so in January of 2023 of this year, a unanimous federal three-judge panel ordered South Carolina to redraw that 2022 map uh, after an eight-day trial. Um, and then the state has appealed that ruling to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and so this is a little different. Like last year, I, your listeners may remember there was Allen B. Milligan, which dealt with the Voting Rights Act. But in this case, we're arguing that the map violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, right, which came in right after the Civil War and said that people have a right uh, to vote, as well as the 15th Amendment, which prohibited denying the right to vote to people on account of their race. So these are really like we're back in the Reconstruction post-Civil War area era arguing these cases that you cannot, the courts cannot or the state legislatures should not be allowed to gerrymander and to say that people of color don't have equal rights to vote. It could not be more fundamental to our democracy and to who we should be and aspire to be as a society. Um, and so that case is going to be argued, and it's really, really important, not just in terms of what's going to happen in the 2024 election, but what's going to happen to our country and our constitutional republic if we begin to prohibit and permit states to prohibit people to, the right to vote based on their race. Um, so it's sort of a crazy-making <laughs> case because you just think, could it possibly be that we're having to argue these cases again and again and again? But, you know, Bill, these rights don't stay one, and freedom doesn't defend itself. And that's why it's so important that ACLU lawyers are in the Supreme Court making these arguments. And I'm really proud of my colleagues who are out there um, doing that. And sometimes when we fight, we win. Often, in fact, when we fight, we win. Um, just um, earlier this week, two days ago, uh, the Supreme Court rejected Alabama's attempt, this is in Alabama, not South Carolina now, uh, to defy orders to draw a fair congressional map. Um, and allowed the, the, the lower court's judgment to stand. Um, it was amazing because just earlier this month, um, the lower federal court had rejected the Alabama legislature's new 2023 map, um, which was the second time they rejected it. So initially the lower court said, no, you got it wrong. You ger racially gerrymandered again. Um, go back and do it again. The legislature came back and once again, racially gerrymandered and made it so that black people, who comprise a third of the population in Alabama, that they would they would only have one district where they would have an ability to choose their candidates of their choice. Um, and so they failed a second time. Um, and so this time, thankfully, the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to take it up. We're not going to say that the court was wrong. Um, and this time, the good news is instead of sending it back to the legislature, the courts themselves are going to be creating those maps. And so we're hopeful that the ruling or the decision by the Supreme Court not to overrule um, the lower court in Alabama and instead making sure that we're going to have fair voting maps that aren't going to be racially gerrymandered, we're hopeful that that's a signal that in the South Carolina case we'll get a similar positive ruling. Uh, but you never know. So stay tuned. It's going to be a very interesting uh, Supreme Court session overall. We're going to leave it there. Carol Rose is the executive director of the ACLU of Massachusetts. We really appreciate your insights and this review, with this preview of the upcoming Supreme, Supreme Court session this term. Thank you so much, Carol. Really appreciate your time and insights.
Thank you, Bill. It's an honor to be on the show. Take care. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Iron Horse is now under new ownership. Eric Schur has sold the Iron Horse Music Hall to the Parlor Room Booking Agency. The iconic Northampton music venue has been mostly vacant since the pandemic shutdowns. The sale comes at a time when the Iron Horse was at risk of losing its liquor license due to inactivity. Another day, another school committee resignation in Amherst. This time, Tom Fanning, a member of the Pelham School Committee, is calling it quits. This brings the total number of resignations in the Amherst School District to six, including Superintendent Michael Morris and four other school committee members. In the aftermath of allegations that transgender middle school students were being bullied by school guidance counselors, here's former member Peter Demlin. I mean, I would say that Ben Harrington, Allison McDonald, Sarah Hall, and myself aren't obligated for one more second of public service to our communities, given what we've been through. Interim Superintendent Douglas Slaughter told the remaining school committee members the results of the Title IX investigation would likely remain confidential, but parents and other school committee members are demanding more transparency. Greenfield resident Michael Williams Jr. pleaded not guilty on Wednesday to the charges related to the alleged dragging of a Massachusetts state trooper and ensuing pursuit last Friday. Williams' arraignment had been delayed twice due to his hospitalization after he swallowed what is described as a bundle of heroin in court documents. The judge set Williams' bail at $100,000 cash. He is expected to appear in court again on October 18th. Partly to mostly sunny today, a high of 66 to 70. Clouds gradually increase tonight. Evening temperatures will be in the 60s and 50s, an overnight low of 44 to 50. Then for Friday, mostly cloudy, chance for some scattered sprinkles or showers, a high of 66 to 70. Partly to mostly sunny over the weekend. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. In 2022, Whole Children moved its campus to Northampton. We're continuing the same inclusive programming that we've been offering since 2004 to students of all ages with and without disabilities. After school and Saturday classes for this session run from October 3rd to December 9th. Take a look at the classes we have. Yoga, chorus, dance movement, cooking. Come take a tour. Scholarships available. Wholechildren.org. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. 
Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP news, information, and the arts and messages from community nonprofits. This is our Have Faith segment, and our very special segment host, Carol Bull, the Reverend Carol Bull, has with us and her today a very special guest who we've been trying to have on for a long time. The pleasure of the introduction is yours, Reverend Carol Bull. Oh, I'm so pleased, Amber, that you are with us today. Uh, Amber Bay Bemac is based in Northampton after three years spent living in Mexico City and seven years living between India and Nepal. She is a filmmaker, artist, and educator whose creative practice is rooted in experimental and documentary film. She's taught film theory and practice in India, Nepal, Kenya, Mexico, and the United States. And currently, she is working on her second feature-length film called Cosmic Moose and Grizzly Bears Veal, a documentary about her uncle Peter Valentine and his magical house. And in addition, uh, Amber has been a practicing Buddhist for 31 years and says it's a big part of her work and life. Amber, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And let me just note note for our listeners that uh, Carol Bull, the Reverend Carol Bull, is the pastor at the United Church of Ware, is, of course, a regular segment host here on our Have Faith segment. And I would like to intervene and interject with this quick question. Uh, Amber, what are you doing in Northampton? <laughs> well, I was born, I was actually born at Cooley Dick, um, and I grew up in Amherst. And so um, this is my home. And um, I just um, became a parent like 17 months ago. And so I decided that I wanted to um, have my daughter spend the first year of her life in my home hometown, home area. Is, so is, is your child a Cooley baby, too? No, she's not. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. I give the microphone back to you. Carol Bull, Reverend Carol Bull. Yeah. So, uh, Anna, if you can, tell us the story of why you're making this movie and this documentary, and I and uh, one reason I was wanting to focus on this is I read in the newspaper that Amber had received a Guggenheim Fellowship for this movie. So, tell us, um, tell us the story of your uncle and his magical house without giving away, you know, the ending or whatever. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Well, um, why did I want to make the film? I think because. A lot of people, a lot of friends um, for many years were encouraging me to make a film about my uncle. Um, he, he is a really, he was a very um, unique person with a very unique life story. And so you know, it wasn't actually my idea. It was, it was friends of mine that were like, you have to make a film about him. He's so <laughs> interesting. Um, and so I just, I just started to think about it like many years ago. And then 
in 2021, I was actually, I'm a professor in Dallas, Texas, and I was able to come back here for a year also um, because when everything went remote. So I was living here. I pref- Obviously, I really like this area because <laughs> I keep trying to move back here. But um, anyway, so I was living here and then uh, in 2021, and I started going to his house in Cambridge to film with him and just, just you know, just to start and just like thinking about it, talking to him about it, uh, filming his house, filming him doing things like going to the store and buying some spaghetti and meatballs, um, going to the restaurant. So I just lightly started to film with him. And then, you know, time went by and I had to finish another feature film that I was working on. But then actually he passed away in August of 2022 and when he passed away, it really, and I had just finished my other film, it really ignited, um, reignited my desire to make this, this feature film about him. Now, basically, um, the, the, there's many stories about Peter that I could tell, but the main story that, that's the most sort of um, spectacular is that when he was, um, he, he was living in Cambridge in an apartment building in the 80s and um, and 90s, and he was living on disability. He had a diagnosis of, of paranoid schizophrenia, and so he received disability. He was living in an apartment with, with really no money at all. And MIT at that time wanted to expand um, their, they wanted to build this development that was part of their sort of campus called University Park. And so they they were going to level and demolish all of the all of the buildings in that neighborhood. And we actually, we've experienced some of that in Northampton as well. I remember at one point I was living on Arnold Street, and I, don't, I'm, I shouldn't talk too much about it, but I remember there was some details about, you know, a university wanting to expand their campus and demolishing some of the buildings and houses there. So anyway, this is a story that we all know well, right? Academic institutions just kind of gentrifying. So that that happened, but Peter actually told MIT that he, he said to them, you know, this is not, I can't leave this house because this is my electromagnetic realm. And whoa, 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 whoa. He said, yeah, I can't leave this house because what? He's, well, he, so he was, um, he was, there's a lot to say about Peter, but he was, actually doing some very serious work that he for him he in his mind he was protecting the city of Cambridge and the world really with his sort of system of protection that he developed called electromagnetic arts and you know that's part of what the film deals with is this question around uh, mental illness and magic, and um, because Peter was actually unmedicated, he did not he did not take medication. He he survived and thrived based on the system of protection, the very intricate system of protection that he developed. And so, you know, people actually took him seriously because he had a lot of mentor. He he was mentoring a lot of people in the city with this system of protection, and he was very wise as well. So although he he was, you know, very eccentric and unique, and anyone listening can Google Peter Valentine and you'll see 
how what a colorful personality he was he there was also something quite grounded and wise about about him so he did say to MIT quite seriously like this is my realm like this is I'm doing my research and you you're a research institution and you shouldn't disrupt um my research I can't leave this place and so this was years of him really pushing back and saying you can't you can't kick me out of here. So in the end, what happened, which is the spectacular and magical part of the story and wild part of the story, is that MIT actually decided, um, and, and don't get me wrong, this was, you know, the Tenants' Rights Association got behind Peter, the, the community got behind Peter, although, of course, there was controversy. But a lot of people were behind him in trying to help him not be displaced by the gentrification. And so Mm. MIT ended up moving the entire house to another neighborhood, Central Square, and also selling him the house for $1. (laughs) So Peter became the owner of a three-story apartment building. um, In Central Square? In in Cambridge. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so, so let me interrupt for a sec because I'm missing one piece of this thread. All of these things that Peter was asserting and doing, or the research he said he was conducting, is yeah. this real or was this a figment of his imagination? Well, that's a good question for anyone, right? <laughs> like what is real and what is a figment of our imagination? Because I think for all of us, those lines are always blurry, you know? Um but he, because, you know, our, our work comes out of our imagination and, yes. you know, it's, it's, a, it's a symbiotic relationship between the mind and the physical. And, but Peter, um, yeah, he had, he was, you know, he was carving objects of protection. His house was filled with charts and um, maps and writings. And he also had a fence outside his house that was purple and where he wrote, like, um, a lot of sayings on it. And people really interacted with with his work and found it very helpful. Um, and, and it's not and, – and what was interesting is it's obviously, like, a central place. And so people would walk by all the time, and he, would, he was just very um, open to talking to people often and, you know – it wasn't just the passerby. It was also like the police would come and talk to Peter and and hear you know, his work. And, and he actually taught the electromagnetic art system to the police at one point. Like he gave workshops wow. and the mayor would come and, and sort of consult with him. So like, and and I, I want to say, Amber, I just took you up on your invitation to Google him, and it is really yeah. fascinating. And I yeah. see that when he died, Cambridge mayor ordered the city hall be illuminated yeah. in his favorite color pink every oh. evening for one month. Yep. Oh, yeah. So he, wonderful. you know, and that's another thing. So Peter was very involved in local politics in Cambridge. Um, a good example of this is he decided that, um, that Central Square shouldn't be named Central Square anymore. It should be named Starlight Square. And so the city <laughs> actually created a space in Central Square that was called Starlight Square, and and that's oh. a space. It's a space in Cambridge right now, and it's um, it's a place where performance happens. And so Peter and there's plaques in the city 
and and a mural I think um, dedicated to him. So he also he attended every city council meeting, um, and wow. he was a, he was the only person in the city that was allowed to speak on whatever topic he wanted without you know pre-announcing. So he was a very respected member of the community. And and there's that so there's that part as well. He was a beloved and respected member of the community. So mm. there's there's that's that's the public facing story about Peter. And of course, the film will get into um, the other aspects of Peter's life. Um, but that's the main um, you know core of the of the film is that story because it's so incredible. And yeah. Amber, I, I just want to add but the, my last interruption, but when I'm reading the obituary, uh, it said he transitioned to the cosmos on August yeah. 9th. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We are speaking with Amber B. Mack, filmmaker, Northampton-based filmmaker, Amber B. Mack, and the United Church of Ware pastor, the Reverend Carol Bull. We're going to continue this conversation, this fascinating conversation about a fascinating man, right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. I'm not sure if opposites attract, but most couples differ greatly in their views about household finances. I'm Frances Rayum, the money doctor, with Hug Your Money. Money is a very volatile topic, and most seem to either argue about it or rarely discuss it. A sort of division of labor emerges, one partner becoming the steward of household finances, the other less directly involved. This arrangement may work until a stressor is introduced, college expenses, budgeting issues, impending retirement, etc. That's when sparks can fly. Each person's perspective is quite different, and it's likely only a short-term solution if any will arise. The Hug Plan presents an easy-to-follow, long-term solution that helps get both partners on the same page, alleviating stress and inspiring them to manage their finances successfully. I'm Frances Ray on The Money Doctor. We now offer advanced tools and financial coaching using our patented system, all under one umbrella. For more information and to schedule your free consultation, visit our website at hugyourmoney.com. Ranford Marsalis is one of the most influential figures in contemporary music. He led the Tonight Show Band. He's played with Sting and the Grateful Dead. He's done Broadway, classical, but the center of Branford Marsalis's musical universe is the Branford Marsalis Quartet. He's bringing the quartet to UMass October 5th. From New Orleans' first family of jazz, Ranford Marsalis, saxophonist, band leader, National Endowment for the Arts Jazz Master, three-time Grammy winner, bringing his quartet to the Frederick C. Tillis Performance Hall. This celebrated jazz ensemble is known for its fearless and uncompromising interpretations of a kaleidoscopic range of material, original compositions, jazz, and popular classics. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center box office. An evening with Branford Marsalis and his quartet, Thursday, October 5th at UMass Amherst. 
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with the pastor of the United Church of Ware, the Reverend Carol Bull, and Northampton-based filmmaker Amber Bemack. We're talking about Amber's new film about a fascinating relative, the uncle, the crazy... No, that's not fair. The uncle who shows up at Thanksgiving. Um, But uh, Peter Valentine, uh, a fascinating story of community involvement and really community love. So please continue on, if you would, please, Reverend Carol Bull. Sure. Well, what what a beautiful um, web you have woven for us about this amazing person. And I want to say, um, you know, this was your uncle. It wasn't just an amazing person. It was your uncle. And I, I'm wondering if you can link how is making this film an act of faith for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... Part of what I um, have said in, in like proposals that I'm writing for grants to support production for this film is that my my practice as a Buddhist, my practice in the in the Vajrayana tradition of Buddhism, really opened me up to um, sort of understanding uh, understanding Peter in a different way because in that and I and like you said at the beginning of the show I lived in uh, between India and Nepal for a long part of my adult life and I was really involved with my I have two gurus who are incredible teachers and I, I was very close to them and worked for them and so I was very immersed in this world where um, for instance someone like Peter in that world might have become like an oracle or um or even a teacher mm. you know and and um i saw a lot of things like in that time that um that i was living in between india and nepal like you know the dalai lama for example his holiness the dalai lama would go to a, an he had an oracle who he would consult who would go into trance and, and at one point, for you know, we, I was able to see that oracle go into trance, or I would go to an oracle sometimes to ask questions, or and, and there was many, um, there was like exorcisms, and you know, people really believed in spirits. Like if someone was having a mental health problem, they would go to one of my teachers, and they would basically do an exorcism. To, you know, that mm-hmm. was the first kind of approach or not necessarily mm-hmm. the first approach because I think the first approach would be um, med- like Tibetan medicine which is herbal and not um, but the, you know then maybe the second approach would be to, to sort of exercise the spirit so I you know and then a lot of sort of um, other things that maybe in this context we would say are magical were, were things that were sort of part of the everyday and so from being in, immersed in those kind of situations, I really understood Peter in a different context because, like I said, you know, he was very eccentric, but he was also very grounded and he also had a lot of wisdom, which is why I think so many people were really connected to Peter. Um, yes. So, wow. you know, I think that's interesting. I, and I think mm-hmm. the way that we treat mental illness um, in this sort of context 
is also can be problematic. Like what are the resources? And also there's a lot of resources. You know, I'm not trying to say there aren't. But I just wonder about the expanded um, view of like what is that diagnosis? What is what is what did Peter have access to that we might not have access to? And how is that like a treasure actually for, for a yes. community? Wonderful. Mm-hmm. What's your take home? What do you think? Amber, what's your take home lesson? What should we take home? What do we, what do we learn from Peter's life? Well, Peter um, wasn't always like a magical wizard. <laughs> He was actually, um, he had a very troubled start of life um, in many ways, and that will be part of the film. He was, um, he was involuntarily hospitalized uh, many times in the early part of his life, um, which is probably why he didn't want to take medication. He wanted to, to figure out a different way. Um, and so, you know, the film is not done. I'm in research and development so the take-home will probably change um, because that's the kind of filmmaker I am. So as I keep going in a process, things get revealed, things change. Um, but right now, I, you know, it just feels like I want people, to, yeah, like have an expanded awareness of... of and, and we're going to have to leave it on those words of expanded awareness. Filmmaker okay. Amber Bemack, thank you so very much. Reverend Carol Bull, thank you for bringing Amber Bemack to our show today. We really appreciate and, both of you. And thank you, thank Amber, you for all. moving to my neighborhood. Nice to be here. <laughs> this is Talk the Talk. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Caminito Steakhouse in downtown Northampton? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Caminito Steakhouse in downtown Northampton is all about its steak and a whole lot more. An eclectic menu, a great bar area, and a superior wine list make Caminito Steakhouse a great place for a special night out. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Are you an educator? Want to be more confident teaching about environmental issues? The Hitchcock Center for the Environment in Amherst offers hundreds of curriculum units, lesson plans, classroom activities, and professional development workshops for K-12 teachers. Come check us out. The Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. For more information, visit hitchcockcenter.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP. And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And here we are. The calendar. I'm looking at the calendar. We had Labor Day. We had a solstice. We have Indigenous People Day coming up, all of which just are dwarfed <laughs> by the light of the Northampton Jazz Festival. Hello, Ruth Griggs. Hello, Buzz. Hello, Bill. Hello, you have, Dan. You've probably been a, is... a pretty busy president of the Ooh. Jazz Festival. Oh, it's a, yeah, it's popping. I feel like I'm inside a popcorn machine this week. No questions about that, but it, it's, it's all good. It's for really, it's really good stuff. So before we go any further... <laughs> 
Tell us when it happens and where it happens. Yes, it's it's going to be happening starting tomorrow, Friday, Jazz Strut Day, uh, which will be all over downtown Northampton. Um, hopefully the rain will, will hold off and we will start our festivities at Pulaski Park at 4.30 um, with none other than the Jeff Holmes Big Band. Um, again, weather permitting, uh, but... Then from 6 o'clock on, we are all in indoor breweries, bars, restaurants throughout Northampton, Spoleto's and Worst House and Progression and The Deck and Fitzwillie's. And and we're going to end it up with the Toasted Owl with a late night jam this year. And I want to talk to you about all of that. And we are before this before this hour ends. We're going to go, go into those things um, because it's amazing, the economic in impact on this region and the uh, cultural impact on everybody, just what it means for our community to have a festival like this right here throughout the city. It's just going to be fantastic. But meanwhile, I think you have a special guest on. I have a special guest who has never been a guest on the radio show, so I'm really pleased to introduce everyone to Nate Gowen. And Nate is um, our produ- one of our producers. He's also a incredible lead on our volunteers uh, and is on our board of directors. He's the uh, director of admissions for the dance and and, um, music department at UMass Amherst. Nate, Nate, thank you for all you you do. Good morning, all. Thank you. Yeah, that it took you a few minutes um, to go through all of that, um, but that's about the size of it. Oh, it's uh, not. We know there are a lot of other things you do, but we're not going to talk about that today. Um, well, we don't get that kind of time. He, yeah, he d- he does some amazing things. Come Halloween, um, but Nate, oh, that, yes. if if you could if you could talk a little bit, you know, I kind of gave the overview first of the jazz strut, which is a little bit of our focus today because it starts tomorrow, mm-hmm. and we want to make sure that people know to come downtown and enjoy all of these Is there a wonderful... better name for an event than Strut? <laughs> Jazz <Indeed>. Strut. <laughs> strut your no, stuff. I... And so if you, if you could talk a little bit about the musicians um, that people will be enjoying tomorrow and sort of the whole, the whole idea of the Strut and the structure of it, I think that would be a really nice thing for people to understand a little better, Nate. Absolutely. The, the underlying philosophy of, of the jazz strut, which, which I, I, I affectionately refer to as, as a bar hopping event with music, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's the idea that um, while the Saturday event is, is a really huge one regarding bringing in all these major jazz artists from all over, you know, all over the region and beyond to come and perform. I, I like to think that the jazz strut is the is very much the Northampton, the capitalized and Northampton part of the Northampton Jazz Festival. We try to focus a lot on local artists at local venues, trying to remind everyone that, you know, jazz is alive and muse, the music and the live music scene is alive throughout and around town on this. What is, you know, could be any other Friday night in late September, but in this case that the town is hopping. So we have a lot of local musicians um, as well as some folks from, especially this year, we've got a lot of folks coming from the Hartford area and even a couple coming all the way up from New York City. So we got some major um, New York cats coming up here to play as well as some really awesome local groups. Um, I know Ruth uh, mentioned the Jeff Holmes big band, um, who, and he's obviously a major force to be reckoned with here in, in the Valley um, and has been for a long, long time and has some cool connections to actually the theme of this year's festival, which is Max Roach. Um, so, and then, uh, I know this sits close to home, but even the, the sponsor of the strut is the local UMass, uh, UMass Fine Arts Center, which is, you know, 
a, a, a neighbor to where I work as well. Uh, so the idea being is you, you get to check out um, starting in the park. You get to hop basically from, from restaurant to restaurant or even just pick a spot and sit there and enjoy a music at a given place. I know a couple other guests today include Molly Plaisted, um, who's, who's actually a friend of mine from when they were a student here at UMass. And uh, we have Rich Goldstein, who's a fellow, I believe, out from Connecticut to play as well. And he'll be on the talk show today, too. Yeah, it, it really is cool because you have the choice, as Nate said, to literally like have a dance card. And you can fill your entire dance card over the course of, of Jazz Strut Night, which is what some people like to do. I mean, sometimes I will mm-hmm. run into someone and say, hey, how you doing? And we want to chat for a minute. There, Nope, sorry, I got to go. I got to go to the next spot. I want to hear the next band. I want to get in everybody tonight. Because the yeah. bands are staggered and each band starts a half an hour after the other, but each bl- band plays for two hours, As Nate said, you can either sit there and enjoy a full meal and dining experience at Spoleto's or you can hop from place to place and have a have a beer at, at, you know, at Worst House and have another beer at Progression and end (laughs) up your evening um, at the top of the hill at the deck. So it's really it's. I, I also feel it's a little bit like, you know, trick-or-treating for adults. You yeah. know, it's just everybody's go. wandering yeah. around town, you know, having a good time and um, sort of saying hi on the street as you pass by. And it's um, it's quite a scene. Um, it's quite a happy, happy scene. As w- happy, one person scene. once said a couple years ago, Nor- uh, Northampton felt like New Orleans last night. And, <laughs> and, and that's wonderful. But Nate Gohan, I wanted to ask you, you're a producer and you're on the board of directors of the Jazz Festival. But why do you think it's important for a community like Northampton to host an event like this? Why do I think it's important to host an event like this? I think for me and mine, the thing that the answer that sprung to my mind the quickest honestly stems from recent times, dark ages that I will call it, when we went too long a period, which any period long enough is too long, without live music. And that's the, I know for me, that's the engine personally that kind of keeps me running the idea of, of keeping live performance indeed alive. And, um, you know, for Northampton, which I think all the year round always has this vibrant art scene to really capitalize, to really go, hey, hit a high watermark with, with very specifically the sounds and the spirit and the community of jazz music. I think is a really important facet of, of Northampton's life and times. Um, but for me, the, 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 the big engine of this is to really showcase at the very late, at the very, very least live music. And when we say live, I mean it in the true sense of you are there to experience, to experience an art form as it's being, as it's happening, it's being created live. That's what makes jazz even a little more different is, is there is preparation, but not in the same way as, as, you know, more classical or pop music stuffs. There's so much in the way of improvisation, so much in the way of seeing that one cool thing that is here in the moment and you might not experience it the same way ever again. And to me, you know, to have Northampton be that culture center, to be that, that, that cool, um, 
it, it's hard to put into words, but I think that's the I think the best way I can describe the answer to that to that awesome question. Thank you. He did a good job putting it into words. He did a spectacular <laughs> job. Nate Nate is uh, Nate Nate is very good with words. Um, <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> so one of the things um, before we we wrap up our our very brief sec- segment this morning with Nate, one of the things mm-hmm. is the the late night jam. And when we were talking yeah. with Matt Wanzik the other day on the radio show, we we spoke a little bit about the jam. That um, that Matt Wanzik is going to be leading for the first time this year at um, Toasted Owl from ten to eleven thirty. Um, so let's do another shout out and call out to our musician friends out in Radio Land that may want to stop by. Nate, um, how should they come prepared to participate in the late night jam? In three words, bring your axe. Um, what we've got going on is uh, with that 10 o'clock, it's, it's something brand new we're trying this year. But the notion is come with your instrument and come, I'd say, with like a tune or two in mind. You know, we're not sure how many, who many is going to show up. But the notion is come on over, be prepared to swing, be prepared to listen. I always encourage folks at Jam Sessions to be there to listen as well as to participate um, be patient. You know, there could be a ton of people. There could be a few people, but wait your turn. Be patient, be collaborative, be supportive. Um, and you know, part of that, keep, keeping that community chipper is, is, is jam sessions are never about just one person. Um, and I think it's, 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 yeah. And come prepared with a tune. Always have at least two or three tunes in your mind. That's like, Oh, that one'd be cool. Oh, that one'd be cool. And do your homework. Cause some folks might be calling tunes that, Okay. I kind of know that one, so so be prepared. Be prepared as best you can, because um, if any of y'all have ever actually been to, um, say, over at the Drake or at the old bowling alley um, where where the Green Street Trio hosted their jazz workshops, I'm hoping, thinking that'll be that kind of vibe. Um, but we're bringing that to to Northampton. You know, it's harkening uh, uh, back to what you were talking about before, Nate. Going, it, it, watching somebody innovate, um, watching somebody—it's like watching somebody making discoveries. It's like watching mm. somebody self-reflect. It's like watching somebody team up with somebody they never met before, and they kind of speak the same language that the rest of us only wish that we could speak. <laughs> and the result of it is sometimes just pure magic. Drops. It's pure magic. magic. My jaw drops. Like, how did they yeah. do that? Yeah, and you feel like you're yeah. witnessing something. I mean, f- for all of the performances on Jazz Strut tomorrow night, um, you- you're going to be witnessing something that... Is, is it's going to come, you're going to hear it, you're going to listen to it, and it's going to be gone. And that is the magic of, of jazz. And so I just want to thank Nate for being with us today. We are, we are talking about the Northampton Jazz Strut, which is going to be tomorrow night, starting uh, weather permitting uh, at Pulaski Park at 4.30 and running straight through until 11.30 at night if you want to stay up that late. All the details mm-hmm. about this and Jazz Fest Day, which is the next day, Saturday, are on NorthamptonJazzFest.org. Thanks again, Nate, and we'll see you all there. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you guys so much, and take care, friends. We'll see you soon. Stay. We're going to continue our conversations about the Jazz Fest right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
Who are the healthcare heroes in your community? Business West and Healthcare News announced the Healthcare Heroes Class of 2023. Meet this year's honorees and read their inspiring stories in Business West. Reserve tickets to the Healthcare Heroes Celebration on October 26th at Marriott in Springfield. Healthcare Heroes is presented by Elms College, Bay State Health, Health New England, and sponsored by Holyoke Medical Center, Mercy Medical Center, the Elaine Merrib Center for Nursing at UMass, and the Institute for Applied Life Science at UMass. Visit businesswest.com today for details. Jazz abounds downtown this weekend. The Northampton Jazz Festival, celebrating Max Roach with the Max Roach Centennial Concert this Saturday at the Academy of Music. The Northampton Jazz Festival, kicking off this Friday with the Jazz Strut. Free performances at seven breweries, bars, and restaurants downtown. The Strut starts at 4.30 in Pulaski Park with the Jeff Holmes Big Band. Saturday morning, the festival gets going at 10.30 in Pulaski Park as the expandable brass band leads a jazz parade through downtown. Ten free shows around town, including the return of Matthew Fat Cat Rivera spinning rare jazz 78s in the park. Saturday evening, the festival climax, the Max Roach Centennial Concert at the Academy of Music. An all-star band led by South Hadley-born Roach disciple Joe Farnsworth with George Coleman and Christian Sands. Get complete details at NorthamptonJazzFest.org. Jazz abounds downtown this weekend, the Northampton Jazz Festival. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Northampton Jazz Fest president, uh, Ruth Griggs, and you have a very special guest coming up. I have a very special guest. I have a very special uh, segment, and I appreciate um, you giving uh, me and my guests a full hour today to talk about the Northampton Jazz Festival. It's, special, it's such a special it, event. You guys are so supportive. It's just the words cannot describe. Um, but, yes, we are talking about the Northampton Jazz Strut, which is tomorrow night, followed uh, the next day on Saturday by Jazz Fest Day, which is going to be kicking off at Pulaski Park at 1045 with the expandable brass band leading a parade downtown Northampton around and back to Pulaski. And then the music kicks off um, at the Unitarian Society, at Edwards Church, at the Parlor Room, and of course at the park, straight through until 6.30 on Saturday night before the Max Roach Centennial Concert at the Academy of Music starting at 7.30. Well, speaking of Max Roach... Do I hear the sound of drum, the promise of drumming? You do hear the promise of drumming. We do. We have drummer Molly Playstead on the phone today, calling in from Hartford, where uh, they recently moved to, and they're a, a, a UMass um, music grad. And Molly, thank you so much for being on the phone and for playing tomorrow night at the Jazz Strut at Northampton Brewery. Of course, thank you so much. It's such a it's such a privilege. I can't thank you enough for the opportunity. So, Molly, tell us a little bit about your trio that you're bringing to Northampton Brewery tomorrow night 
at six o'clock, you kind of you kind of kick off the whole strut in the in the downtown, you know, restaurant, you know, area. Um, tell us about your trio. Yeah. So in this trio, um, it's it's piano trio, piano bass drums. I have uh, a little combination of UMass and also Hartford, where I've since moved uh, as of a within the past month. So on, on keys, uh, I'm bringing Mike Arabello, who's a phenomenal pianist and, and bandmate, especially in the, in the Hartford scene, you know, jazz and beyond. He's incredibly versatile, and it's always such a good hang with Mike. And then on bass, we have Liam Keeney, who, um, you know, is a former roommate and close friend of mine, and we played together a whole lot when uh, we went to school at UMass together. So um, we have a, a lot of experience, you know, a bassist and a drummer living under one roof, really getting the, the chance to hone our craft together and lock in, you know, and I'm, I'm sure that the three of us will, will have a great time and we have a good set coming up for, for you guys. I'm really excited to, to play and, and to kind of share with you what, what's in store. You know, I think that Molly is such a perfect example of, what we do here at the Northampton Jazz Festival, as well as, you know, in, in the Northampton area. And that's that we, we have so many um, young students, as well as, you know, graduates and players from UMass Amherst, which has an incredible jazz program, has for many, many years. So that plus, you know, the Hartford, the Hartford folks, the folks that come up from Hartford, because some of those, some of the UMass folks stick around here, a lot of them do, and we are the beneficiaries of that. But Hartford's, you know, an hour down the line. And um, I know, Molly, that it, it's, it's wonderful to have you coming back to Northampton. But I understand that Hartford is also a pretty cool place to kind of find yourself so you can pop down to New York and you can pop down to New, New Haven and come back up to homeland up here. What's, what's your feeling about being in Hartford? Why did you choose that? Well, I love Hartford. Um, you know, Hartford has it. So that, that's kind of their, their saying uh, down here. But it, it really has a vibrant scene, um, you know, between uh, what the Hartford Jazz Society puts on and like jam session at Black Eyed Sally's, like you said, the proximity to New Haven and the jazz underground down there. And of course, New York being, you know, pretty close, not as close as Northampton, but still pretty close. Um, the location's advantageous, but um, a little bit outside of the realm of jazz. I actually am working with uh, a local theater uh, in Hartford, they're called Theater Works, and we're doing a musical called Lizzie, which is based on um, the tale of Lizzie Borden, uh, local to uh, Massachusetts, native of Fall River, Massachusetts, and it's all grunge music. I'm, you know, stretching my versatility there a little bit, but it's not really a stretch. I'm, I'm more comfortable every day, and, you know, that um, tech week is currently underway for that production, so... I had to make my way down to Hartford to be there for, for that. For, and the run is for the entire month of October. So that's it. more immediately what brought me down to Hartford. And that's a project I'm, I'm really excited to get moving on as well. That sounds like a really interesting project. But Molly Placid, I wanted to ask you, when you said you're so flattered to be coming back to this region, not all of our listeners are jazz fans, but this event really has, in my view, something for absolutely everybody. And 
why does an event like this ring as important for you, a jazz drummer? Well, you already kind of spoke to this earlier, but this is the Max Roach Centennial. And, you know, the, the ties that the Western Massachusetts area and UMass in particular has with Max Roach just historically um, means the world. And also just getting to give back to a community that gave me so much, um, you know, when, when I was coming up and, and learning this music really, and, you know, digging into it for the first time, digging into the history, digging into the language and, you know, digging in, swinging all those good things. Um, I very, very connected to this place. Did, did, did you feel that there was any particular influence on your drumming um, and your studies of drumming back in the day from Max Roach? Like how was that, how was his, how was his work incorporated into your education at UMass Amherst, Molly? So we, uh, you know, Jeff Holmes made a, a very concerted effort um, when I was, Jeff Holmes is the director of jazz studies at UMass Amherst, um, incredible, but he always emphasized the importance of, you know, what the department grew out of, you know, thanks to people like Max Roach, like Billy Taylor, like Yusef Latif, and, you know, knowing, you know, the kind of foundation that the, these masters and, and elders laid for us to be able to learn this music um and there was always something very rewarding about practicing and rehearsing in the same four walls that where max stood on on those floors you know it's something kind of surreal about it that and then beyond that you know i i've transcribed so much max i've listened to records like Clifford Brown and Max Roach probably a million times over and just, you know, like transcribing Max Roach's solo on Dawood off of that record is is something that comes to mind immediately. Um, but yeah, or like the drum also waltzes, stuff like that. You know, his, his language and his approach to drumming being so melodic and fluid, um, you know, has definitely made its mark in my language and in my playing. Well, that, that's I, awesome, Molly. Molly Playstead, awesome. drummer, UMass Amherst graduate, um, telling us all about the influence of Max Roach, whose centennial we will be celebrating on Saturday Jazz Fest Day and throughout the festival this weekend. Thank you, Molly Playstead, for that wonderful description of how he Im- has impacted you as a drummer. Thank you so much for having me both. I, I, I could not be more honored to be here, and I look forward to playing on Friday at 6 p.m. at Northampton Brewery. Break a stick, Molly. <laughs> We're going to be right back. We're going to continue our conversation about this extraordinary event, the Northampton Jazz Best. It's upon us. It's only a day away. <laughs>
Walk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Iron Horse is now under new ownership. Eric Schur has sold the Iron Horse Music Hall to the Parlor Room Booking Agency. The iconic Northampton music venue has been mostly vacant since the pandemic shutdowns. The sale comes at a time when the Iron Horse was at risk of losing its liquor license due to inactivity. Another day, another school committee resignation in Amherst. This time, Tom Fanning, a member of the Pelham School Committee, is calling it quits. This brings the total number of resignations in the Amherst School District to six, including Superintendent Michael Morris and four other school committee members. In the aftermath of allegations that transgender middle school students were being bullied by school guidance counselors. Here's former member Peter Demlin. I mean, I would say that Ben Harrington, Allison McDonald, Sarah Hall, and myself aren't obligated for one more second of public service to our communities, given what we've been through. Interim Superintendent Douglas Slaughter told the remaining school committee members the results of the Title IX investigation would likely remain confidential, but parents and other school committee members are demanding more transparency. Greenfield resident Michael Williams Jr. pleaded not guilty on Wednesday to the charges related to the alleged dragging of a Massachusetts state trooper and ensuing pursuit last Friday. Williams' arraignment had been delayed twice due to his hospitalization after he swallowed what is described as a bundle of heroin in court documents. The judge set Williams' bail at $100,000 cash. He is expected to appear in court again on October 18th. Partly mostly sunny today, a high of 66 to 70. Clouds gradually increase tonight. Evening temperatures will be in the 60s and 50s, an overnight low of 44 to 50. Then for Friday, mostly cloudy, chance for some scattered sprinkles or showers, a high of 66 to 70, partly to mostly sunny over the weekend. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Hi, I'm Jane Wolf, Executive Vice President of Residential Lending, asking you to come on over to the co-op. It just makes sense. And dollars, Jane. I'm Angie McClay, Residential Loan Underwriter, and we want you to know we've extended our mortgage promo so there's more time to save on your mortgage closing costs. That's right. There's still time to save up to $1,250 when you obtain a pre-approval from GCB. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to help walk you through the process and answer any questions you may have. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing cost credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by November 30th, be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. 
It's a farm-to-table dinner like no other. A dinner on the bucolic 55-acre campus of the Hartsbrook School in Hadley with vegetables from the Hartsbrook School farm, honey from Hartsbrook bees. Hartsbrook alum Nate Sustick, executive chef at Paul and Elizabeth's, will do the cooking. And Nate will be cooking by fire. The Hartsbrook School farm-to-table dinner, Saturday, September 30th. Good food, an auction, a convivial evening celebrating Hartsbrook education. Get tickets now at the Hartsbrook School website website. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are continuing our conversation about this weekend's, well, tomorrow and Saturday's jab, Jazz Fest with its the president of the fest, Ruth Griggs. And you have Rich Goldstein, a guitarist, a band leader, a super talent. We do, we do. We are we are focusing um, this segment, the first three parts of the segment, on the jazz strut, which starts tomorrow. And we're just so proud of the local and and you know regional musicians that we bring to the strut because Northampton in this area is is really a good home for jazz. It's been known for jazz for many many years. With it's like there's Harlem, there's New Orleans, there's Northampton <laughs> and Amherst. <laughs> Yeah, and so so um, one one of the really phenomenal musicians that we are going to have at Jazz Strut tomorrow night is Rich Goldstein, who is on the phone with us today. Guitarist, educator, composer, band leader. Thank you, Rich Goldstein, for being on with us for a few minutes this morning. I know you're you're a busy guy down there at Hart School of Music, right? Is that where you're teaching now? I know that's where you got your degree. Yeah. So I, I have been a longtime member of uh, uh, at the Hart School, but in the mornings I've been teaching at the Arts Academy. That's where I actually am right now. I found myself a private little space <laughs> upstairs, where I away from the uh, the noise of uh, the Arts High School. And, uh, <laughs> oh, but it's so, such a happy yeah. noise. <laughs> <laughs> um, some of them, yeah. There's some very happy noises happening downstairs, <laughs> but. Uh, Right now, I'm in a quiet spot, and uh, so Rich, um, Rich Goldstein is going to be playing um, with his 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 quartet on tomorrow night um, at the deck, which is up by the train station in Northampton on Pleasant Street, from seven to nine. So, Rich, tell us a little bit about who you're bringing and what kind of style you're going to be playing, and all that good stuff. Get us get us jazzed. Uh, so. My hope is to play some of the songs that I've, uh, I'm releasing on a record that's coming out on Truth Revolution Records. Uh, sadly, the organ player that I normally play with, who's like really my counterpart, is Jan Frankel. He can't be there, but I have a bassist named Steve Porter. And I do have the fabulous and fantastic uh, positone recording artist, uh, ben Galise coming up uh, to play vibraphone uh, with me, and uh, the great Ben Belillo, um, who's an old-time friend that I played with for many years. Wow, uh, Vib- so vibes, vibes. Yeah, so we'll have nice. vibraphone. And, and, yeah, and uh, much better than average vibraphone. <laughs> he's, a, he's a fantastic talent. Um, I think he has eight of his own releases on Positone, um, and I've, we've been friends for, for many years. He's actually on, a, on my the two records I did before this too. So Ben and me go back a long way as well. Um, and uh, yeah, so, but the group normally features organ, which is, you know, it's kind of a special sound when you have vibraphone organ, like Hammond B3 organ um, and guitar and drums. 
um, that's what the recording, uh, I sent you a couple of tracks from that recording. That which, we play, which we are going to play, which we are going to play. Oh, and, and if, yeah. you know, not, not immediately, but continue on, but we're going to play. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, and, you know, I really, I love that sound because vibraphone, of course, is a more, you know, when you associate that sound, it's definitely more of a jazz instrument. You don't hear it that much in popular music. Um, but organ, you hear a lot in the blues and in even in rock music and in popular music. So, like, the combination of the three tones of guitar, vibraphone, and organ really is, an, a, you know, a nice pad. But on this record, I, I mix together a lot of, uh, you know, just things that I love. So, in a lot of ways, I consider myself an American musician. I like, I love jazz, but I grew up listening to you know, rock and blues were hugely influential. I mean, I really played the guitar because I loved Jimi Hendrix as a kid. Cool. Uh, he was like one of my, you know, big figures, you know. But it took me in different directions. So, you know, I went through that. I had rock bands all through high school that, you know, played at the fairs and did all the repertoire that was, you know, kind of current of the day uh, and worked my way to really falling in love with jazz music. And that's when I ended up having the good fortune to have the hard school and Jackie McLean uh, very close. And then, you know, that was just hit me. <laughs> it like hit me in the, in the, in the face. Uh, you know, I said, wow, this is, and that, you know, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. So I even studied classical music, believe it or not. I was a classical guitar player uh, for my first year uh, at the hard school. Rich Goldstein, so, you sound like, just a way more versatile guitarist than I, than I ever thought you were. I mean, I, I know that you are a wonderful guitarist that has played with, you know, a, a bunch of different people and are on lots and lots of records. Um, but the versatility is fascinating. And that kind of ties into a topic that Buzz and I want to just touch on briefly, which is that, you know, not everybody thinks that they like jazz. Um and, you know, we, I do believe that, that live music, whatever it may be, um, if it's approachable, it's, it's a wonderful experience to hear live music, jazz or blues or otherwise. But, but with your versatility and your particular band and with the cut that we're going to hear in a little bit of A Hard Day's Night and your take on that, tell us a little bit about, like, how people might you know, approach the music that you're going to play tomorrow night at the deck at from seven to nine. Like, why should they come if they're not a jazz fan? I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, well, we like I said again. Sometimes those labels can really put they certain people are set off by the label jazz. Uh, jazz is a American music at its base in popular music is jazz music. So you don't really get to R&B. Rhythm and blues, actually, the term comes from a DJ who is playing really blues records and jazz records at the same time. Rhythm was more the jazzy. I never knew that. We're Thank you, Rich. Yeah, we're, we're going back to the 40s uh, for those, you know, when that term was coined early R&B. It starts in the late 40s, believe it or not. Um and, you know, the musicians playing these musics aren't separate. It's part of the culture, um, and most of it coming from African-American culture. So I've gone back and really listened all the way back to the, you know, early gospel, field hollers, spirituals. Um, they all play part in the role of the development, 
which goes through ragtime, swing, uh, jazz, swing, you know, uh, all these histories play in New Orleans music. It, it becomes R&B. It becomes funk. It becomes rock and roll. Um, so they're all in the same lineage. I don't really differentiate them that much anymore. Uh, like, you know, but labels are created to, you know, kind of give a crystallization and, and you can't market something unless you have a specific name for it. So well, that that, was... a lot of that happens. That was a lovely mini lecture. It Thank was, you so I, much, I, Rich Goldstein. Well, I'm looking for another <laughs> mini lecture. And that because is you're this, so Rich, good. Rich Goldstein, whenever... But, yeah, so I took a Beatles tune, and I do it in our way. That's the way I play with my group. So it has all of that in it, you know, and it's a Beatles tune. But, I, you know, I don't see the Beatles as a some completely other thing. Uh, there is a relationship between the music they're playing and, and the music that we call jazz. So uh, we're going to be doing it instrumentally. We're going to put a shuffle bluesy feel on it. Um, so it has a lot of... Uh, we're going to hear it in a second, but I think that Buzz wanted to just jump in with one more question for you. I did. Absolutely. And because I imagine if I was a, a musician as accomplished as you are, Rich Goldstein, um, that... You know, I, I might have when I was a kid. Those of us who played baseball, we always dreamt that we were going to be playing in, you know, in 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 uh, Yankee Stadium. Yankee Stadium. There you go. Or in this case, as a musician, there you are in Foxborough with sixty thousand adoring fans as you're up on stage playing. But I've I find so many accomplished musicians love to play in a jazz festival because they're surrounded by colleagues. Because well, I should ask you the question: Why do you love playing in a jazz festival? Well, I, I love playing it in jazz festivals, and I'm going to love playing tomorrow up in Northampton for the reason that usually when we start to think of music in terms of a jazz festival, we think of music that's probably going to be geared more toward listening than like partying and dancing. It's more of a concert atmosphere. Um, not that you can't party and dance. <laughs> Originally, jazz was that music. Um, but... Uh, and for an audience who is really going to listen to what you're doing. So I'm trying to speak to people through the process of, you know, I'm taking the way I play the melody, the feel that I create as a jazz musician uh, with the group and, um, and, and personally on my instrument, you know, and I'm trying to tell a story in my improvisation on the song, which are all concepts that go back um, in this kind of music. Um, and, at a jazz festival, that is what people are more likely to come and hear than to be at the, you know, if I'm playing a gig at the casino or I'm doing, you know, I'm backing up somebody and, you know, a singer in a, in a more pop setting, you know. So this is where I get to really expose myself through the music uh, and hopefully people are there to listen to my what I have to say. Well, I think that if people take a listen to your your arrangement, your rendition of A Hard Day's Night that's coming out on your, your record soon, Rich Goldstein, guitarist, composer, arranger, let's take a listen to A Hard Day's Night and make sure you come up to see him at the deck tomorrow night from 7 to 9. Thanks, Rich Goldstein. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be coming up to Northampton tomorrow.
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed and get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. Hello, this is Mother Nature speaking. Well, speaking through me. You can just let everything slide until next spring, but I'm not going to be happy. I know you're busy. We're all busy. That's why you call Beyond Landscape. They cut back the perennials, deadhead the flowers, clean up the leaves and compost them. Maybe the lawn needs feeding or the beds need weaning. Oh, you'll get to it? Oh, really? Listen to your mother. Take back your weekend. Call Beyond Landscape. Book a fall cleanup. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. Every Thursday we have been uh, sort of forecasting um, by displaying talent here on the radio uh, that's going to be participating in the Northampton Jazz Fest. And um, no, no coincidence at all that our, uh, our jazz correspondent, our mu- music correspondent here on Talk the Talk, Ruth Griggs, is also the president of the Northampton Jazz Fest which I think started in 2011. I guess the real question is, you're a busy woman. You're a businesswoman. You are a marketer. You have a thousand things going on, but you've invested so much time and energy in creating this amazing thing, the Jazz Fest, and sustaining it. Why did you do that? Why have you done that? That's, that's, a, that's a personal question, actually. Uh, when I, I, I grew up in Northampton, and uh, then in my late 20s, I moved to New York and was in New York City and worked there for 30 years, um, raised my family, um, lived in Westchester County, and um, life changes. And in around 2010, I looked at myself and I said, do you really see yourself in Westchester County 30 years from now, Ruth? And I said, no. Where do you want to be? I want to go back to Massachusetts, is what my voice said. And so my heart took me back here, came back in 2011. And uh, at that point, um, I stumbled across the Northampton Jazz Workshop, which was still at the Green Street Cafe. And I sat down at a table all by myself because I was up here and um, sat next to Robbie Reuter, who's a guitarist, and said, What is this? What's going on here, Robbie? And 
that was the beginning of my love of all of the folks in this in this community that that are involved with jazz, that play jazz, that teach jazz, and it's just it's just grown like a happy mushroom since then. And um, the Northampton Jazz Festival, which was founded in 2011 by four or five wonderful men, um, just sort of lost its way um, uh, in. 2015 and just kind of went quiet, went dark. And in 2017, Amy Kaelane was uh, new on the scene as the executive director of the DNA, and she said, you DNA, know, the downtown. the downtown Northampton Association, and I took her out to coffee just to meet her and say, hey, welcome to Northampton. And and she was, she said, you know, merchants are saying, like, Where, where's the Northampton Jazz Festival? Where's the music? We really want live music downtown. And she said, is there any way to bring that back? Why do you think merchants are saying that? Because they love the vitality. They love just having live music, no matter what the genre, but I'm going to say especially jazz, brings a joy to your soul. And we see it every year at the Northampton Jazz Festival. I know it brings a soul, uh, a joy to my soul, which is one of the answers to your question. Why are you doing this? And um, so with Amy's support and my you know, knowledge of the jazz scene, we brought it back and had our first festival all around town in 2018. Um, my mother was a jazz singer. I grew up on jazz records. Um, my husband was a jazz pianist and composer. My son, Rob, in Springfield is a jazz pianist and composer. So it's somewhere in my blood. And I feel like I'm just, I'm living, I, I'm, I'm taking forward the legacy of my husband um, and just and my son will be here volunteering all day on Saturday. Um, he's very passionate about helping to support this effort. So it also just is a wonderful combination of community, of economic development, of music, of jazz, um, that is just a, a, perfect, um, a, a perfect sort of Venn diagram for me. It's just so great when I go to any jazz festival, frankly, but any music festival, frankly, and I see people who will never see each other again. They're together for an hour and a half or whatever. And the smiles and the wonder. And dancing together. They get up and dance together. And they. this happened uh, over at Lennox at the jazz stroll that we went to a couple weeks ago. A woman was dancing. My buds got up and danced with her. And they started to talk and share notes and friends. And it was a beautiful happening. It's like, you know, sort of a, uh, a Organic. Kevin, Kevin Bacon kind of uh, footloose <laughs> moment where he says to the city council, from time immemorial, people have been learning. There's a time to dance. There's a yeah. time to sing. There's a time to make music together. There's a time for the Northampton Jazz Festival, which is this weekend. We've been talking a lot about Friday, the jazz strut, starting uh, weather permitting at Pulaski Park uh, at 4.30, running straight through at the breweries, bars, and restaurants, sort of more on the east side of Main Street uh, until 11.30 at night. And then Jazz Fest Day um, kicks off with the expandable brass band in Pulaski Park at 10.45 and runs all free jazz, free jazz on Saturday, Friday, free jazz on Saturday during the daytime. Um, and we have, you know, if anybody who's been on this show this morning has heard the caliber of music that we're bringing to the jazz strut. Well, you know, X that up a few percentage points for the Jazz Fest Day. It's going to be remarkable. How do you it's curate? Gonna, you're, you're, How do you decide who to invite to play? Good question. So, so this year we are as as. 
people know, we are celebrating the centennial of Max Roach, who's a drummer, social activist, professor of music at, at, at UMass Amherst uh, for many years. And, and his legacy um, and his influence on other musicians, be you a drummer or a singer, a vocalist, um, is, is enormous, a bass player. And they, they all are, frankly, channeling the, the messages, the music, um, the social activism, the civil rights activism of Max Roach at the Jazz Festival, especially on Saturday. So you are going to hear songs by Abby Lincoln, you know, songs that really tell a story. You're going to hear Avery Sharp and his 22-member extended family choir with the Symphony Chorus of Springfield talking about you know the struggles of being a, a black person in America. You are so so. It's it's that inspiration that Max Roach has given so many musicians that are coming to the festival that you are going to hear on Saturday. Uh, you know, I live in the hill towns, but Northampton is such a hub, Bill Newman, of music and culture. The front page of the Gazette is about the Iron Horse. Uh, there's promise that the Iron Horse is going to reopen. Yeah, and I wanted to ask uh, Ruth Griggs about that and the relationship, actually, to the Northampton Jazz Fest because the Iron Horse is a destination, has been a destination for years. Jazz is a large, large draw here in western Massachusetts, or I should put it the other way, western Massachusetts, in particular Northampton, is a large draw for jazz. And I'm wondering if you could tell us why. There's there's a tremendous amount of creativity that has and and ingenuity um, and entrepreneurialism that has just been a foundational rock of Springfield, Northampton, Western Mass. I mean, going way back to I mean, look at what look at what Florence was. You know, back in the day of the abolitionists and whatnot, there's there's just it 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 is a hub for creativity and expression and individualism and all of that is present in jazz as well as you know the indie music that um, the Iron Horse really um, supports and makes and brings to life. So it you know uh, uh, the Iron Horse and I should say the Parlor Room and Signature Sounds. Um, Jim Olson uh, has been an incredible supporter of the Jazz Festival from the beginning. We have, you know, uh, Mark Whitfield is playing there um, on Saturday at the Parlor Room, and we thank him for that. Um, so really, it's, I think that, you know, whatever kind of music is being played in Northampton, whether it's singer-songwriter, whether it's jazz, whether it's rock, whether it's funk, um, it, it is a hub, and with the Iron Horse reopening under the, the, you know, the parlor room, it's, people are going to be so excited to have that back. Yeah, and there's something amazing. that Here are these great bands on tour. They're in Boston. They're in New York. And in between, they're in Northampton. That's it. That's why we've got Joe Farnsworth and Christian Sands and Peter Washington and the like coming to play at the Academy of Music on Saturday. They, they, it's not far from New York, and it's on the way to Albany or on the way to Burlington. Or, or Montreal. Or Montreal or across the state from Boston. Right, but we have something special here, which is we have smaller venues. These are people playing for thousands and thousands of people, and you can have this intimate experience with them here in venues in Northampton. That's what I think is so extraordinary, and they want to be here. 
It is so true, and I have musicians telling me that all the time, that they love the vibe here. Christian Sands played at Bombix earlier this year, and he said, Northampton has always been known as the place where you want to play music. And I was just like, whoa! You know, and, and it is just um, Christian McBride. I think I said Christian Sands. I meant Christian McBride, the famous jazz bass player. But, you know, he's, he played at the Iron Horse back in probably the 70s, 80s. So it, it has that name for itself. It has that vibe. It has that spirit that's very welcoming. So, And come. literally there are dozens, dozens, dozens of great musicians who are going to be playing tomorrow and on Saturday. Look it up online at Northampton Jazz Fest. Get to, you can see there what the menu is for this weekend. And thank you so much, Ruth, for the people you bring to us, for the work that you put into the Jazz Fest. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today. See you Go this weekend jazz at the Jazz Fest. In a world of chaos, Armstrong and Getty Show cuts through the fake news of the day and gets straight to the common sense heart of the burning issues listeners really care about. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. Armstrong and Getty. Be informed and involved. Listen to Armstrong and Getty weekdays from 6 to 9 p.m. right here on 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Would you like a better world? It's as easy as grabbing a hammer and building a home. Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity builds strength, stability, and self-reliance through affordable home ownership in Hampshire and Franklin County. It's not a handout, it's a hand up. Habitat homes are built with donations of material, land, and services. Future homeowners and volunteers create a partnership with Habitat for Humanity to build a home, strengthen our neighborhoods, and create a legacy for our community. Help transform the world. Volunteer and support Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity. PBWHMP. 